Thank you, Pastor Jake. Um, hey, go ahead and grab your notes, and we will um, we'll jump into this real quick. Uh, if, um, if you weren't here last week, we started a new series on Revelation. Here's where the idea came from. Uh, towards the end of 2018, we had done an online survey, and it's one of the reasons why uh, when you have the app, if you'll turn on notifications, you, you can help us with things like this, but I think it's beneficial to you. The question was asked, um, are there any subjects you would like us to teach on, things that you would like us to address? Now, I, I'm, not, um, I'm not certain that I would want to go uh, like year after year with letting um, other people pick what we were going to teach about, right? But I do think that the purpose of why we're teaching is to give you things that, that you can use, tools that are useful for where you're at in life. And there is um, a proverb that says that a good shepherd knows um, what his flocks need. And so allowing you to help me define that I think is important. And so the number one thing that was written back that we'd like you to teach on was prophecy and revelation. And so that's where this came from. It was, it was just simply a yes to a request that people had had. And I know for quite some time I've had people asked me to teach on that a little bit. So I'm not going uh, verse by verse through Revelation. It's, it's, a, it's a tough book to go through that way, to be honest with you. And if you're just like, well, I'd, I'd like to learn it that way, um, go to Mardell and get yourself a nice concordance and go verse by verse. It really is, it's interesting, but it's, it's a difficult book to simply go verse by verse to try to teach. These three reasons are, um, are why. One, um, Part of, of how you have to read it is that a man who existed 2,000 years ago, um, a disciple, um, a, a, an older apostle, one of the last ones left at that point of the original 12, is trying to write about things that he sees in a vision that are taking place um, a couple of thousand years minimum into the future. And he's trying to describe things that a man of his age in place is trying to look at things so far in the future and then use language to describe it. So, for instance, he talks about seeing in a, in a battle, he talks about seeing something that looks like a scorpion that fire comes out of its tail. So what, what is that right there? So I, just, I threw this out as a hypothesis. I don't know that it's true, but just a thought to try to explain the difficulty of understanding when John does this. If a guy that lived... Um, before A.D. 100, or wrote this book before A.D. 100, is trying to describe something that might look like a Black Hawk helicopter that's firing missiles. It would, would you describe that as possibly something that looked like a scorpion with fire? Yeah. It is, or did he actually see a huge scorpion with fire coming out of it? So if he did, I'd like to see that on the TV, not up close and personal. So you have to realize that a, a person, just because he's having a vision... God doesn't somehow uh, anoint his intellect with, with a modern ability to go, oh yeah, that is a this. He's describing it the way that you and I would if we were looking at something in the future that we had not seen before. Does that make sense? So some of that we're trying to decipher. Some of it then is, is direct. So last week we looked at... Uh, in, in Revelations uh, uh, 2 and 3 in particular, um, Jesus is actually dictating to John seven letters to seven churches that existed at the time, but he's also writing it to the spirits of or to the angels over these church. And we know that angels, don't, they don't die. Yeah. 
they're eternal. So as he's writing it to them, he's writing it with the idea that they exist right now, but they also will continue to exist in the future. So we took that teaching and we said, okay, here's the things that he said are really good and strong in, in the church. Here's the things that have made their way in that are deceiving you and you need to get rid of them. And we looked at it for, for 2019 and 2020. What things would God commend us on as a church and what things would God warn us about and say, you need to, you need to get rid of this. It's harming you. And so we took it that way. So some of it is, is just literal. It's straightforward. And then the third thing that you have to be able to do when you're looking at uh, Revelation is that um, it, he uses a poetic language at times where, where he's, he's uh, describing Jesus as the lamb who was slain and yet now is alive and is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he's using poetic language that it helps to understand what he means when he says those things. But for so many people, imagine uh, you've got these three ways that you're trying to interpret this book. There's no order to it. So he could be using a direct, literal thing that he's saying, move into an allegory, and then use poetic language all in the space of three or four verses. And that's why most people are just like, Let's go back to Genesis, and we'll start again in 2021 on Revelation. So that's what we're trying to do with this. And um, rather than trying to go verse by verse with it, I'm trying to pick from it as we go through the chapters things that I felt like the Lord gave me to teach on it. So we're looking at Revelation 4 and 5 this weekend. Uh, if you're just writing down notes, Revelation 4 and 5, uh, I would encourage you to do this, is a picture John, and I'll show you in just a second, John uh, is suddenly transported through space and time to the dimension of heaven, and in heaven he's in the throne room. And in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, John is trying to describe what the throne room of God looks like, what, how it's set up and where God sits and who's there and the worship that takes place at times in heaven and how, how awesome it is. And here, here's the most amazing thing to me, the fact that he can even write about what he's seeing. Because I think if most of us saw it, we, we wouldn't have words to even try to describe. And so this, 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 this man who is blessed to see it is also limited because he's still a human and he's trying, the, 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 the uh, humanity is trying to describe divinity. That is, that's not easy. Uh, so, so we've got these pictures that, that go on. So let's look, uh, we'll just start real quick, uh, just these things, and then I'm going to take you to a specific message. So Revelations 4, 1 uh, begins this way. John says, then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven. So he's trying to describe what he sees. He, it's not a literal door with a knob that's opened up. It's a, it's a passageway. It's like as he looks up, uh, the Bible describes it this way. Uh, when Jesus talked about um, the end of times and the sign of his comings, he said at, at the consummation of the ages, the, the heavens will be rolled back like a scroll. All things will be revealed. And instead of it being this dimension and this place here, it all becomes one thing that can be seen. So what John is, ha there's an opening that he can look into another dimension and that dimension is where heaven is. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when somebody says, hey, Tell me where heaven is. You can't point and go, it's that star, turn right. <laughs> right? It's not that way. It, it exists in a dimension that is, is beyond just like, oh, let me, let me just show you right there. And how do we know that? This is one of the indications that as he looks up, he sees an opening uh, into heaven. And that same voice I heard 
before spoke to me like a trumpet blast, so it's really loud. And the voice said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. And then the next verse says, immediately I was in heaven. Immediately. Now, so here, here's what many scholars believe this could be. This could be, have you ever heard of the term rapture? The rapture of the church. Uh, there are programs, even in our recent time, that have done things on the rapture. Of course, they're writing it from a secular point of view, in a way mocking uh, the idea of the rapture. But uh, here's what the rapture is. And by the way, if you have a concordance, you could spend the rest of your life looking for the word rapture in the Bible. It's not there. It is, it is not there. It's a terminology given to a theology, and the theology is this. Jesus taught it in Matthew 24. Uh, Paul wrote about it in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, it's here in Revelation. It's the idea, the word rapture means to be caught up. Caught up. And the idea is that with a trumpet blast, the voice of the archangel, the sound of God, whatever that's going to be like, it's going to be unmistakable though. God will say, now. Or give the signal for now. And the church, his bride, is caught up with him. Does that make sense? So Paul says in Thessalonians, it looks like this. We shall not all die, but we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. In a moment of time, the the flesh uh, is exchanged for the mortal, for the immortal. And that body that you'll have in heaven... You'll put that thing on, and it ha- it's not through a slow process of a metamorphosis. Instantly, this happens. And it happens at the trumpet sound. What is that? The blast of an angel that, that, that calls out. I, I don't know exactly, but John uses that, that this angel in a loud voice says, come up here, and then instantly he's there. So some people think this describes in other places what Jesus talked about, what Paul talked about, what Peter talked about, uh, this, this ingathering of the church. Um, and so that might be what that is right there. Uh, if you take it just as, okay, uh, literally not adding any speculation to it, what we do see from it is that John is on earth, he has this vision, and in the vision, uh, the ability to see into the dimension called heaven is there. The angel says, it's okay for you to come up here, calls him, and instantly he's in the throne room. Make sense? Okay, so that's where he writes then the perspective of the rest of Revelations 4 and 5 from is standing in the throne room trying to describe how incredible these sights are, how awesome the Father is, and, and then Jesus, uh, not, not as the, the suffering servant who came to the earth to save man from his sins. Jesus is now King of kings, Lord of lords, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and John tries to describe how worthy and glorious Jesus is. What adjective would you use? Yes, maybe that's, wow. Maybe that's, with exclamation point, exclamation point, uh, smiley emoji. I, you know, what would you, what would you put? <laughs> that's not in the Bible. Okay, um, so in Revelations uh, 4.8, so I'm just kind of moving around here just a little bit, but in Revelations 4.8, they'll pull it up on the screen, um, I have this, this new Bible that I, that I bought, um, and the print is, uh, you know, they have like uh, extra large, large, and then they have this one that's called for a baby who can read small, small print, but it was in the translation that I wanted, and it was the only one I could get my hands on. So uh, this is uh, in Revelations 4, 
uh, in um, uh, verse 8, the second part of it, John describes these heavenly beings. For, I, it's a, I'm, I'm trying to use this big blanket word to cover what is very difficult for him to, uh, to describe. In fact, before I read 8, let me read 7 to you. He writes it this way. Uh, the first, remember he's in the throne room. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Then verse 8. Each of these living beings had six wings. And their wings were covered all over with eyes. Inside and out. So here, here's what he's seeing. He's seeing something that is it's a heavenly creation of some kind that has the ability to know and see all things. And he's trying to describe something that knows everything, so he uses poetic language. It has eyes every place. So did it literally have eyes? No, it's, it's this being that God has created that is able to witness the beginning of time through the ages and now stands as a witness in heaven of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and God's plan for all of mankind. Do, do, do you get it? So he's trying to describe, how, how would you describe that? If God made you aware of this thing he created to be a witness through time that has recorded the ability to see everything, how would you describe that to a person? You might do the same thing, that it has, it's able to see it. It has eyes every place. All right. Uh, so we move on a little bit further. The first of these living beings was like a lion, the second an ox, the third a human face, the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out, and then this part. Day after day and night after night, so this, this is ongoing without end, these creatures, these, these created heavenly beings, keep on saying, holy Holy, holy, because of what they've seen, witnessed, and have recorded. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who still is to come. They've witnessed that God always was, is, and always will be, and that's what they're proclaiming in worship to God. Does that make sense? So John is an eyewitness to this. He sees this. He's trying to describe it in language that's, that's so short for what he'd, he'd like to be able to do. Now, um, in reading this right here, it's interesting because at our teaching team, uh, one of the pastors brought up uh, one of the things that's been taught over the years that I think is wrong, and it's in the idea of, um, uh, the pastor didn't believe this to be true, he just brought up that this has been taught, and so here, here's what, the, what will we do when we're in heaven? What will heaven look like? What will you do in heaven? Uh, that's a, describe that. And most of us are just like, I, I think it'll be good. How? Why? You know, uh, for so many years, if you heard me teach on heaven recently, so most people just believe heaven is a place where your disembodied spirit enjoys the clouds with a harp and some grapes. That's been the cartoons that you, yes or no, what does heaven look like? It's, you, it's a cloudy place and someone's playing a bring, 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 really exciting. That's great for 10 minutes, but then what? Right? And so then it was described that what we'll do in heaven is just worship God. Well, yes, there is a place that we will worship God. And what will worship look like in heaven? Uh, worship will not be like, like we're here where some are into it and some aren't into it. And I know that song, but I don't like that song. And I wish they'd change the beat. And how, you know, 
20, 20, you know, your mind's all over. Heaven will be trying to describe it to actually see him face to face and to be captivated where nothing can break your focus and your gaze, where your mind doesn't wander because you don't want it to wander. Nothing is pressing or more important than that moment in space and time with him and you are engaged, you will worship and you will worship fully and it will not be a form, it will be your heart fully engaged with the Father. You will love him and he will love you. You will see Jesus and Jesus will see you and you will be engaged and enraptured and enthralled and you will not be bored. Boredom does not exist in heaven. It does not exist in heaven. It's a byproduct of an earth off its track, yeah. not going in the direction that it's supposed to be going. So that, so that in this, wow, this, now I'm wandering, but God, God gave us work, man gave us jobs. That is so good. It is. There's a whole teaching there I want to do this year at some time. But God gave to us work that matters, that has dignity and an assignment to it. And man has come up with jobs that you go at this point and you get off at this point and you can't wait to get through it so you can get away from it. And then the best thing that can happen is to get to retirement so you never have to do it again. But people get locked and loaded for retirement. Nothing wrong with retirement, but certainly we exist for more than making it to retirement. And some are like, no, it's happening this year, and that's why I exist. Don't take it away from me and shut up. So, okay, I get it. I, I do not begrudge you retirement in any way, shape, or form. But I am just going to say that when you get to heaven, you will not work for retirement. How about that? Heaven is not a place where retirement is the highest level that a person can get to. So this worship that we'll do. So what the pastor had said is that he had heard teaching or had been taught over the years that all we'll do in heaven is worship. Incorrect. It's false. The little bit that the Bible does tell us about what we'll do there, here are some of the hints that one of the things that we'll do, it says that we will judge and reward angels for their work. How Would you feel comfortable in your flesh judging some heavenly being? I would be like, uh, no. Can you get somebody else? Like, Steve will do that. I'm going to back out of the... Um, but if you were not in the flesh, but in that immortal body that God created at the level of restoration where the original intention of creation is being fulfilled, now you're at a place where it all, that's, that's the work that you've been given, not a job that you're doing. You'll be interested in it. Does it make any sense? If the Bible says we'll know and be known and the idea simply there is that you won't be a stranger, it won't be unfamiliar, you won't be uncomfortable, you won't be like, uh, I want to go be by myself. It won't, it won't be like that. It will be home. Hebrews describes it as we walk on this earth that we're aliens and strangers longing for our home. Longing for it. Um, there's so much to teach on this. But that's, so the idea that all we'll do just 24-7 for all eternity is just worship there will be times that we worship, and I think we'll always have a heart that is so grateful and thankful, but I think that there will be work that God has for us, assignments, things that we will complete and do that will not just simply be, hey, you stood there in a robe for eternity. You'll... On to another. So if you keep going through Revelations 4, 
It's the apostle describing to you in limited understanding, limited language, what he's seeing. And that's why sometimes when we read it, it, it's so difficult for us to understand because it's so, it falls so short of how awesome it is. We move into five, and he's still in the throne room, but he begins to describe a scene, and it's really interesting because there's a, a scroll that has seven seals on it. It's been sealed up. And this scroll is the revelation of what God is going to do to consummate history and bring to end the age of this time and usher in the age of eternity. And how does that start? What, what happens to, to jettison into that place? The angel begins to ask, who is worthy? This is not a job for just anybody. This is not work that anybody can walk in and do. Only one person was created to do this. And who's worthy to do this? And then he begins to describe, there's the lion of the tribe of Judah who has won, who was dead, and now he's alive, and he owns uh, all of the keys to hell, to the grave. He's conquered it all. He's the king. He's the Lord. And all of a sudden, the worth of Jesus is being described. And how would you describe the worth of Jesus? And Jesus walks up and takes the scroll because he's the only one found worthy. And as he opens the scroll, he begins to read, and it releases into history how things will end in this age and what opens up the age of eternity. Are you still with me on this? And then in the next couple of chapters, probably something you've heard, uh, the idea of the four horsemen of the apocalypse that actually comes from one of the seals that are opened up in this scroll next week. I'll teach a little bit more on that part of prophecy, what those things represent, what it might look like on the earth, what might happen, what things you might see. It's like, Pastor, can you guarantee when and can you guarantee if? No, I I won't do that. And any teacher that says to you, I can tell you when and I can tell you what, they're lying to you because about that day and hour, no man knows except the Father. And he's not telling But we can know the season. That's what we've been told. We can know the season. So I'll take you to that place, talk about those things. For those who like that, it'll be a little more that that directive. Is that okay? Okay, so um, come back next week and I'll I'll take you there. But today, what are we going to do? I'm going to focus on Revelations (sighs) 5.8. Revelations 5.8 reads this way. He's describing these creatures... um, Jesus, the scroll. In fact, let me just start in verse 6, Revelation 5, 6. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. And then he, just, he uses a word picture. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth And he stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. So Jesus takes the scroll from the Father. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb because he's recognized as worthy and as God. And then it says this. Look at this peculiar wording. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense. And then it describes what the incense is which are the prayers 
of God's people. So these, these creatures that God has created that bear witness to what God has done through history and humanity, who because of what they've seen begin to worship God as holy, holy, holy and almighty and the awesome Lord, then recognize the lamb who was slain but is no longer slain. He's now the king and he is worthy. Jesus walks up, takes the scroll. As he opens the scroll, the elders fall down because he's God. And Jesus begins to read. But then it does this like this weird thing where instead of going forward with the story, it just stops. And it says they each have these harps and these bowls made out of gold that have incense in them. So there's a smell, an aroma that rises from them. And here's what it is. It's the prayer of God's people through the years. So I want to talk about your prayers real quick. And I want to take you to a place of how important they are and what God does with them and why it matters. And and how... um, how deceitful the enemy of our soul is to make us think that our prayers are not being heard, that they're not having an effect, that they're not working. If the devil can convince you that your prayers have no power and that they have no meaning anyway, then you'll quit praying. And you'll go to heaven, but the things that could have been. So some of these prayers bear witness of not only what God wants, but but the, the, the place that we're pushing through eternity to see these things come about. Am I making any sense to you? All right. Um, so, uh, so let me... Oh, you know, heaven won't have clocks either. Jeez. Uh, um, okay. I uh, read this story recently that was really interesting to me. This guy that was a superior athlete, really good, um, ran uh, triathlons, was one of these guys that was just gifted as an athlete, grew up, he was good at it when he... Um, you know, got later into life in his 30s and his 40s, he just still had that gift of, of athletics. He could, he could just do it. And um, he, he, had, he had this terrible accident and his arm was crushed and he lost the use of his arm. And, but he didn't lose the desire uh, of the gift of athletics that God had given him. And after he healed up and he only had one arm, he was trying to decide what sport... He, he wanted an outlet for it. What sport? So believe it or not, he picked handball of all sports. Now, I, it's not that popular of a sport here for us, but in parts of the world, it's very popular. And if you've never played it, um, it's, it's a ball about as hard as a golf ball, to be honest with you. And you wear this little leather glove, and it's, it's like racquetball without a racket. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best way to describe it. It's racquetball without a racket. And you try to smack this ball with your hand, and it hurts. And if you do it one time, you'll know whether or not you were built for it if you like it. I tried it one time, and that was it for me. I never needed to do it again. But this guy uh, who, you know, one of the advantages of handball is to have two hands. Because if you're going to your right, you can use your right. If you're going to your left, you can use your... And if you lose the right or the left, now you've got to do all sorts of crazy motions to reach the ball. But this guy is so athletically gifted that once he masters it, he actually becomes the champion of his club. Then he begins to rise through the ranks, and he becomes number one in the state of California. 40 million people. Not all of them playing racquetball, but <laughs> handball. And so um, what was interesting about the story is that they interview him and he tells his story. It was just a tragic story, but then you know it's really powerful because instead of being overcome by, um, by, by this thing that happened to him and what he's limited by, 
he, he decides that, hey, I'm not going to let anything stop me. And to prove it, he rises through the ranks. He becomes the top. And so they ask him this question uh, of, of everything that's happened to you. So what, what do you consider to be the thing that allowed you to become so good? <clears throat> this, this was his words. He said, um, the best thing that happened to me is that I had no options. He said, suddenly in my life, it was just very simplified. Uh, in fact, I didn't even have the option of using two hands. Uh, when, when the ball comes off the wall, most players in, in a thousandth of a second have to make this decision about which hand they're going to use to hit the ball. Yeah. And that thousandth of a second, as quick as it is, still is a lag time yeah. that allows for people at the very top level of their profession, that lag time is just enough to either lose or gain an advantage over another player. And if you don't have to make the decision because you have no options, you don't have the lag time. You just automatically are going to use this hand. Does that make sense? Say, here's where I want to go with this. When I read that, that made so much sense to me for this reason, that sometimes in the body, we have too many options. It's like, what are we going to believe about healing? What are we going to believe about the demonic? And we have this lag time where we're trying to make up our decision. In the meantime, our enemy takes advantage of the fact that we didn't act on it quick enough. So that we're, yeah, boom. Tractor beam. You and me, man, we're locked in right here. So that, just that split second of like, okay, what, what am I going to do with this? And what am I going to believe about this? Am I going to enter into that? And am I going to go all into it? I'm going to give myself fully to this thing. And we're trying to make that decision. In the meantime, the devil runs right by us, man. And instead of praying, and instead of moving into the moment of it, in space and time, it goes right by us. And now instead of being active, we're reactive. And we're trying to play defense, not offense. So we're back on our heels like this constantly instead of moving forward in space and time. And I think this becomes relevant then to, to it, we've got to get rid of the options that we have. We've got to say there is just one way that we're going. There's one path that we're going to walk on. There's one decision that we're going to make. We're going to go into 2020 not trying to decide whether or not maybe I'm going to give it all. Maybe I'm going to be fully engaged. Maybe this is the year. We've got to decide right now I'm running at it at full speed. I'm giving myself fully to this thing. I'm All that God wants from me, I'm not trying to make a decision of how I'm going to do it, if I'm going to do it, when I'm going. I already I, That was decided. There are no more options. I am locked and loaded. That's it. We're going forward into this thing. So that when we look at this idea of prayer, here's where I want to take you. We, we cannot hesitate. We cannot be caught in this place of, well, am I saying it the right way? And is that really what God wants me to pray for? And does God even care about this thing? And uh, well, maybe I, should, maybe I should just kind of see what happens first before I get uh, too anxious about this and move into it. We've got to remove those options because it's, folks, listen, it's time now. It's time. We don't have this luxury of being uh, complacent or uh, working with the status quo. It's time now to be fully engaged. We don't have the luxury of trying to make all these different decisions. We need to get rid of the options and let the main thing be the main thing that's going to be the main thing in our life. So this angel that is holding these bowls that represent the prayer of the saints, it's trying to paint a picture to us of how important your prayers are. And so these three things, if you've got a pen, write them down. I want you to get this picture. Just from this one verse, this one sentence, these three things are so powerful in my mind. Number one, all prayers are kept. They're stored. They're held on to. Now, now, so, so are there, are, is there such a thing as worthy prayers and unworthy? Of course. Jesus himself taught that uh, there's times that you pray and, and you pray outside of the will of God. 
So, so uh, an example, we've all done this. When you were at some point in your life where you thought, that's the job, uh, that's the man, that's the woman, uh, that's the house, and you're like, God, I'm, just give this to me. And it didn't happen, and then you go through a little bit of time, and then you realize, thank God, he didn't give me that person. Yes or no? Thank God he didn't let me go that way with my life. And you were so convinced that's what you wanted. You're fasting and praying. Those are unworthy. You weren't praying according to the will of God. You were praying according to the will of your flesh. What's the difference? Uh, Life and death? There's another message for another time. So let's just right now, let's say that the prayers that are on target. Jesus, when when he was asked, teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our job then is to bring heaven to earth through our prayers. So when we're praying on target, one of the easiest ways to decide what is target, ask yourself, what's it like in heaven? Is there death in heaven? Is there corruption in heaven? Is there separation in heaven? Is there bitterness in heaven? It's their unforgiveness in heaven. These things, these, these, so look now, I'm being wide right now and there are specifics. As I get it. I understand the nuance of life. I get it. But if we can't get the big thing right, we'll never get the nuance right either. So by eliminating our options, here's our prayer. As it is in heaven, so should it be on the earth. God does not, heaven is not a place of anxiety. Kathleen, do you agree with that statement? Heaven is not a place of anxiety. John, do you agree? Heaven is not a place of lack. Do you agree with that? So that when we're... It's like, oh, I don't know. I mean, these people made stupid mistakes. Ah, God, this is not what you want. God, how do we work to see justice in a situation? How do we work on behalf of the voiceless in our world? God, what is it supposed to look like with my children? God, it is not your will that they are living their lives for things that are fruitless, meaningless, and going to jobs that have no eternal benefit or value. God, call out of them who they are. Worthy. Spend your time on worthy. And again, I know your mind will go, oh, I just wish it was, I wish, I wish I was retired where I could do that, pastor. And just like, that was it. I get the nuance of life. But it doesn't escape the fact that we spend our time just being so watered down and all of these different things. And that these prayers, man, these prayers are kept. These prayers have an effect. They, they, they matter to God. And I just want you to get the reason... All, He's trying to describe the throne room and stops to let us know that in the very throne room of God are your prayers. Think about it for a moment. Um, So I wrote it, worthy prayers, faith-filled prayers, faithful prayers, which are different than faith-filled prayers. Faithful prayers, what does it mean to be faithful? Faithful is what we do when it's no longer fun. Did you just hear what I said? Faithful is what we do when it's no longer fun. Bitter prayers. What are bitter prayers? Bitter prayers are when we find ourselves in places where it's narrow and it's tight and you're being squeezed. 
The word Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was being squeezed, where he sweat drops of blood, where he said to the Father, if there's any other way for this to happen other than me having to lay down my life, please take that cup from me. Not my will, but your will be done. That's a bitter prayer. Not bitterness, but it's bitter. He's being squeezed. Have you ever been squeezed? Have you ever been in a relationship that it's squeezing you? Anybody here? And when you cry out from that place, it's different than when everything's perfect in life. A January prayer is different than a June prayer. And God doesn't despise people in January. That was a word for somebody. I don't know who you are or where you are. But I'm saying something to somebody right now. God's not ashamed of you, embarrassed of you, disappointed in you. He's not against you. You haven't let him down. And a prayer in January means as much as it does when your life is in June. Do you get what I'm, yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. When the sun's shining and the sky is blue and everything's good in life, we pray so easily, don't we? Yeah. It just comes from us easily. But when we're hurt and when we're pressed and when it's not going our way and when all we have is that I don't care what it feels like, I'm not going to let go of God. Did you hear me? And if you're in that place and those are the prayers you're praying, those prayers mean as much and in some ways they have a different effect on God's response to us. Little prayers and big prayers. The prayers of a child. It was my birthday yesterday. So my, two of my grandsons came down to say happy birthday to me and sing happy birthday. The voice of a child. Julia, how it, how it gets my heart. A little child. And then the voice of a 35-year-old child. And the voice of a 56-year-old child that cries out. A child's voice gets the attention of a parent. Do you hear me? Ah. Um. So prayers are kept. How about this? When, when John describes where the prayers are, he's in the throne room, and God's place in heaven is in the throne room. So this is interesting. Your prayers are not on the other side if there's such a thing as, as of heaven. Your prayers are right next to where God is. Now, we know that God exists everywhere all the time, but in this picture, the fullness of the Father dwells in the throne room of God. And where are your prayers? Right in the throne room where God is. And the devil works so hard to convince you that your prayers just kind of leave your lips and bounce off the ceiling and have no effect. And I'm telling you, like that door that was open and the angel told John, come here, and he was transported, your prayers go right through that door into the throne room and are immediately gathered close to the Father. I believe with all of my heart, listen to what I'm saying, we will be surprised at the prayers that God has heard, the things that he brings up to us. Do you remember when you said this? Yeah. And you might go, you heard that? Yeah. Heard it. I was moving on your behalf. Yeah. The answer was coming 
in 24 hours and you stopped? Or do you remember when you saw this happen? Well done. You kept pushing through. When everything felt like brass and it felt like it was shut up, you didn't let how you felt determine how you prayed. And then this, here's the third thing about our prayers that this, this one sentence describes. It says that our prayers are aromatic. Incense, aromatic. Now this is interesting because like few things in life, smell has that thing that reminds us and connects us, doesn't it? Yeah. Like you could smell something when you were eight years old and then you can be 58 and instantly, like a portal that opens in the heavens, you smell that thing and you're right back to when you were eight years old. Yes or no? Yeah. Yes or Good or bad? Yeah. <laughs> Like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Bad. <laughs> Maybe there's a point that different smells do different things to different people. But here's, here's a thought. Chris um, has bought this coffee for me. I'm a, I'm a coffee guy. And uh, she's bought this coffee for me that it's, it's not flavored like this. It's just flavored like coffee. But it's got this smell of toasted coconut. If, if you like it, you know. And if you don't, it's the difference between the Brussels sprout thing. So I like it. And she sets the coffee maker that it, it goes off early in the morning, you know, 545. And then I'll, I rustle somewhere between 545 and 6 out of bed. And this smell has wafted into our bedroom and I open the door, man, and it's just coming up from downstairs. And it's like, do you remember the old cartoon where the smell was a finger that I'm floating on the smell waves of toasted coconut down to the coffee maker, bleary-eyed, pour it, awake. It's so good. And it, it, it falls so short of what I'm trying to describe to you, but so here's my, my thesis and my hypothesis and suggestion that if our prayers are aromatic, could certain types of prayers have certain aroma that God instantly knows where it's coming from in our life? All right. People that are praying from, um, from death. Prayers of God help me. God ease this transition for me. Do they have a particular smell to them? And prayers of innocence. Does that have a particular? Prayers of uh, a wife about a husband or a husband about a wife. God, how much I love this person. God, help this person right now. Prayers of a child that asks, bless my papa? Does it just smell fresh? Smells can be so attractive. So I wonder if they're designed in the aroma to attract the father to them. I wonder if he says to everybody, do you smell that? Ryan's praying right now, and he's crying out from his heart for me. Says, I wonder if that's like, you know, that thing that it just draws us. And are the prayers of a mom 
and thankfulness for what God's given you. Oh, to hold that baby and go, <laughs> I'm so thankful. Does that have a particular aroma to it? And then the prayers like of injustice when everything around us is not well and not right and persecution and it's unfair. You've done right and it's not right. And so you cry out from that place, God, help me. Does that have a particular flavor and aroma to it? Prayers that come from pain. Prayers that can come out of despair. Prayers of joy. Prayers of joy. Before he even hears them, does he smell them and know exactly what they are? And if you're like, I'm just uncomfortable thinking about God smelling things. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. Um, I truly am out of time. So I'm going to give you these four real quick and then I'm just going to pray. Here's conditions to answered prayer that we never consider. We pray and we pray and we pray. And I just want to make this statement. So I know you're about ready to write and your minds are locking. So just listen to me real quick and then I'll let you write. Does God want you only to learn the discipline of prayer? Listen to what I'm saying. Does he only want you to learn the discipline of prayer? Or does he want you to discover the joy of answered prayer? Because some of us, what we've learned to do is be disciplined in our prayer life. You get up in the morning and you spend that time and you keep your journal. You have your prayers. But you're not discovering the joy of answered prayer. You're faithful. Faithful's awesome. Faithful is how you build things. I'm a faithful person, Gary. I've been doing this for 22 years. And as long as God will allow me, I'll keep being faithful in my position. But faithful is only one half of the equation. The joy that comes from it is what God wants us to have. He doesn't want just faithful people. He wants joyful, faithful people. When's the last time you had such joy? Joy in just... You and Jesus, and it was joyful. You and your time with God is joy. You're drawn to it because there's so much joy in it, not because, well, it's 8 o'clock. I haven't done it today. i got to check it off the list. I admire you for faithfulness, but I encourage you to discover the joy of it. Yeah. Make sense? Okay, so write them down. Conditions to answer prayer. One, unity. Unity is absolutely critical. Dagnabbit. I just, I don't know how it happens. Uh, I just don't feel like I'm. So uh, Matthew 18, 19, real quick. Pull that up for me. Uh, Jesus is teaching. I tell you this, if two of you agree, say that word with me, agree, here on earth concerning anything you ask my Father in heaven will do it for you. 
So a, a condition, according to Jesus, for answered prayer, the joy of answered prayer comes through agreement. Let me just state this real quickly. So many times we get ourselves so messed up in relationships this way. We're in bitterness, we're in strife, we're, we're angry, we're, we're frustrated, we're holding on to things. And so this way it's all messed up and then we're trying to go to God this way. And we don't understand why it's hindered this way. Sometimes it's hindered because it's all messed up this way. Let things go. It was also taught this way. When you go to the altar with your offering, if you remember that there's something in your heart, leave your offering. Go to that person. Take care of that thing. Then come back and present your offering to the Father. What is that? That your offering gets hindered. The blessing that comes with your offering is hindered when this is messed up over here. Thank you for shouting me down with the big amens right now. Thank you for like, oh, this is awesome. We don't want to take care of things. We don't want to have to fix things. We don't want to have to go out of our way and apologize for things or to let things go. But then we don't. So we've got the faithfulness, but we have no joy in answered prayer. So it's like we're praying. And then we're convinced the enemy uses that to convince us. Yeah, God doesn't hear your prayers. Oh, are you just, you know. Ah. Um, 1 Peter 3, 7. Peter teaches this when it comes to this agreement thing, but he uses a husband and a wife. In the same way, husbands must give honor to the wife. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker physically than you are, but she is your equal uh, in God's gift of the new life. So treat her as you should. Look at this. So your prayers will not be... You get sideways this way with the person you're married to. Now everybody's looking away from me like. I never noticed the uh, ceiling goes up there pretty good, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> you like that, Jay? I hear you laughing over there. So, uh, you know, we, we um, it's the horizontal gets, gets messy and then we think that we still have this pipeline vertically and Jesus is teaching unity is absolutely necessary to have your prayers answered. Um, yeah, I'll just keep going. Um, tenacity, not giving up, holding on, fighting for it, not being talked out of it, not going away. Uh, this little uh, vignette from Luke 11 uh, then teaching them more, Jesus, about prayer. He used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, hey, a friend of mine just arrived for a visit, and I don't have anything. I couldn't make it to King Supers. I have nothing. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me. The door's locked uh, for the night. Me and my family are all in our bedrooms asleep. I am unable to help you. But I tell you this, Though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. You won't be talked out of it. And so I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on speaking and you will find what you're looking for. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. And then he tells fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Or if they ask for an egg, you give them a scorpion? Of course not. That's ludicrous. That's silly. So if 
You being sinful, mortal, human people, know how to give good gifts to your children because you love your children. How much more will your heavenly Father, who's perfect and loves perfectly, give the Holy Spirit to all those who ask him? So Jesus is describing that even as humans who are messed up, we love our children, we'll answer their requests. How much more will your heavenly Father, who is not with any sin, who is perfect and knows what you need, how much does he desire to answer your prayer requests? And a key to that is, Don't be put off because you have to dig, you have to fight, you have to stand, you have to just keep in that place. So many of us quit because there's some resistance to getting what we want. Dude, I'd have never gotten married if there was not the ability to fight through resistance. Okay, Uh, passion. You missed a good one right there. Passion. James chapter 5, the apostle teaches this about prayer. Confess your sins to each other. Pray. For each other, so that you may be healed. And then this, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Don't change it. The earnest prayer. The word earnest there is passionate. Uh, Forceful. All of your heart being involved in it. Not just mouthing the words. Our Father, our name, will be the name of the kingdom come, that will be done. How fast you can say it, but to say it with all of your heart being fully in you. Better to say three words that you mean than 10,000 that you're just repeating. Make sense? Okay. Uh, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly, there's that word again, that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then, when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. So it uses this story. He's teaching this truth, and then he uses this story. Elijah was a human just like us. He was not supernatural. He did not, underneath his cloak, have a big S or a big E on his chest. He was just a man. But he prayed earnestly, passionately, with his whole heart, and it didn't rain. And then he went back with his whole heart, and it did rain. And he's using that to teach us that when we pray, don't just go through the motion, but give yourself fully to this thing. And do it for as long as it takes. And then last, faith. Faith is a necessary condition to answer prayer. Mark 11, 24, uh, I tell you, you can pray. Again, here's the context. You can pray for anything. And if you believe that you received it, it will be yours. Now, there are uh, groups of people who take that one verse of scripture and build entire theologies off of one verse of scripture. And then they use uh, the kingdom of God to be a means to acquire stuff. Jesus did not die so you can acquire stuff. That is not the nature of the kingdom of God, but he wants to meet the needs and the things that you have in your life. It's important to him so that when you pray, believe it. Be convinced before you go to pray. Does that make any sense? Be convinced before. I'm out of time. Um, And I I, uh, just, um, the faithfulness of my heart won't let me just go through the motions and dismiss you. Cannot do it. Um, So we're just going to do this. If um, what I said has any truth into it right now, so that we come to this place and we just got rid of all the options. We weren't going to take a moment to try to decide whether or not I want to believe that or I should believe that or it's okay to believe that. What if we got rid of all the options? We only have one path to go on. And I just said this. If you needed healing in your life, to be healed emotionally, to be healed physically, uh, spiritually, to be set free. Matthew chapter 10 Jesus encourages the disciples, uh, cast out the demonic, raise the dead, heal the sick, uh, preach the gospel in my name.
game if we just decided we're not going to think about this, we're not going to debate this, we're not going to ask if it was for another time. We're just going to say this is what Jesus taught us. And I said to you, if you needed to be touched by God in some dimension or capacity today and you wanted to believe it, raise your hand right now. Just raise your hand. Okay. Here, okay, okay, keep them up for just a second. Nobody's looking at you, nobody cares. The majority of the hands are up right now. Come on, folks. Don't wander off. Don't let a moment of time pass by. I speak the name that's above every name. The name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess as being the Lord. That name stops demons in their tracks. That name raises the dead back to life. That name brings back restoration and healing. That name produces authority on earth that comes from heaven. That name that's above every name in every situation, every power, every principality, every demonic stronghold, tool and weapon has to crumble at that name his name that name is Jesus man I speak that name over your body over your mind and over your spirit over your marriage your baby, your son your daughter I speak it over your work I speak it over your dreams I speak it over your peace, over your house. I speak it over your relationships. I speak it over your heart. I speak it over offense. I speak that name so that everything will bow its knee right now. And anything that won't bow its knee, in Jesus' name, leave. You have no place here amongst us. If you will not bow the knee. If you will not confess him as Lord, you must let go. You cannot operate. You cannot afflict. You cannot trouble. You cannot pull apart. You cannot hold. You cannot terrorize. You can no longer harm. That name that name that wonderful beautiful name that name that is worthy ah my Jesus my Jesus I love that wonderful name oh I love that name and I bless you in that name amen Amen. Uh, 2020, man, no options. 2020, yeah.